Thank you. Um, so I want to start with a quote from this book, 57 Words That Changed the World by Daryl Johnson. If you haven't read it, this is a fantastic book on the Lord's Prayer and well worth reading. But this particular um, quote at the beginning just frames what I want to talk about today as to what prayer is. Because prayer is all about relationship. And so tying prayer, relationship with God, with relationship with others is absolutely intrinsic to understanding it. This is what Daryl Johnson says. Jesus is brilliant. Yeah, Jesus is good and kind and merciful and strong. But the more I get to know Jesus, the more I'm impressed by the Lord's sheer brilliance. Nowhere is his brilliance more manifest than in the gift of the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. The prayer that's come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. A mere 57 words in the original Greek of Matthew's Gospel, it manages to gather up all of life and brings it before God. Have you ever observed that the only thing the first disciples of Jesus are recorded to have asked him to teach them is, Lord, teach us to pray? That's in Luke 11. There's no record of anyone asking Jesus to teach them to lead or to heal or to counsel or to cast out demons or to preach. They may well have asked him, but there's no record of them doing so. Why? Perhaps it's because they could see that Jesus' leading, counseling, healing, casting out and preaching ministry emerged out of his relationship with his father. And they could see that the key to that relationship was prayer. Jesus, after all, was always slipping away to pray. So he goes on, Lord, teach us to pray. I understand the disciples' request to mean more than Jesus, teach us some new spiritual techniques that will help us to stay awake when we pray and make us feel that our prayers matter. I take their request to mean, Jesus, will you teach us how to relate to the one you call Father the way that you do? So that's the framework I want to take for looking at prayer today. This is about learning to relate to God. It's not about learning formulas of words. It's about learning to relate to God. Now, if prayer is right relationship with God, then the very two first words of the Lord's Prayer, as Jesus teaches it, give us our strongest description of that relationship. Our Father. I think it's important to go back to that. Sometimes we get sort of carried away and we say, Our Father, who art in heaven. But by the time we're thinking about what we're praying, we're already several lines in. I don't know if you find the same. I I learned it by rote when I was at school before I even believed that it was true. And so I kind of just, you know, plow through it. But actually, our Father, right at the beginning, this is radical. God is our Father. So we need to approach him, not as his child, but as one of his children. What I'm not saying is that we can only address God as Father. Let's be clear, in the book of Acts, you get people praying to God as Sovereign Lord, Um, In Revelation 22, at the end of all things, you have this kind of heartfelt bridal prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. It's not the only way to address God um, as Father. And also, although he is our Father, we don't always have to pray together. Jesus is really clear about this. You know, he tells people to also pray in the secret place, you know, to shut their door and to pray just between them and God. So I'm not saying that because God is our Father, we should only pray together and we should only pray to the Father But what I am saying is we need to be intimate with God when we pray. I'm using the word intimate in a particular way, and it has obviously a lot of connotations um, to do with particularly um, sexual intimacy these days. But actually, if you look up the dictionary definition of intimate, it's about being closely acquainted, familiar, private, 
and personal. And there's one particular aspect of intimacy I want to pick up on today, which is that it's unguardedness. There's an unguardedness we need to have with God. So I think because we can address God as our Father, we need to have that unguardedness, that intimacy with God. But also because he's our Father, we need to have that unguardedness, that intimacy with each other when we pray. Whether or not we're in the same place at the same time, there's an intimacy that is present, even if you're not actually physically with somebody in that room, isn't there? Um, An intimacy of uh, common understanding, common purpose, heart joining, that even if you're not in the same room, there's still that commonality. And we need that between us as well. And I think it does also mean we should pray together frequently. Um, I think that's a good thing. So, intimacy. I've picked this word deliberately. Is this clicker working? If I do this, can you just pretend it's working? Is that all right? Brilliant. Um, I've chosen the word intimacy because I want to dig into a few pictures of intimacy with God from the Bible. And I'm going to start with the Book of Eden. In Genesis 2, we read that Adam and Eve were there in the garden with God. They were both naked, but they felt no shame. There's some nervous laughter going around. This is, these are waxworks, guys. Did I, I called it the Book of Eden. I'm very sorry. The Book of Genesis and the Garden of Eden. I thought you were giggling about the picture. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, so in the Book of Genesis 2, chapter 2, Adam and Eve were both naked, but they felt no shame. It's really interesting, isn't it? What is it that we're driving at here? I'm not going to get into literal um, versus non-literal interpretations of this. I'm, I'm going to say that, look, what we're trying to convey here is that Adam and Eve were unprotected from God, and there was nothing wrong with that. There was no shame in that. And yet when they sin, there's a realization of nakedness. It's interesting, actually, the first thing they feel is not shame, but it's fear. When they, when they sin, when they realize that they're naked, they're afraid and they hide from God. And first of all, they try to hide in the bushes, and then they also cover themselves up with leaves. And there's this sense of we need to hide ourselves from God. And God comes looking for them. By, they know God created them. They know they can't really hide from God. But there's this sort of slightly artificial false effort to hide themselves from God. And eventually God actually gives them clothing himself, almost as a grace, you know, because he can do slightly better than the stuff that they've worked out for themselves. But there's a sadness in that, and it comes along with them being sent out of the Garden of Eden and that expulsion from direct presence with God. And from that time onwards, there is this sense of separation between people and God. And it's symbolized by this clothing over them. There's something between them and God. There's other aspects to this which I'm going to come back to, to do with how they relate to each other, but that's where I want to start. The first and most important thing about them clothing themselves is not to do with them being ashamed in in each other's presence. It's to do with them being afraid of God and feeling like they need to put something over them. We see another example of this um, at Mount Sinai. So... In Mount, at Mount Sinai, the Israelites have been led out of Egypt, and they've been led by this pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Now, this is God's glorious presence with them, and it must have been absolutely amazing. I'm not saying that they didn't think it was you know, somehow unusual, but they were accustomed to it. They had been living with God's presence going ahead of them or sometimes behind them to protect them 
with it being there visibly during the day, with it being there visibly at night, giving them comfort, giving them uh, reassurance, giving them light. And they were used to it. They were following God's presence. They were near God's glory day by day. And then they arrive at Mount Sinai. And God thunders from Mount Sinai as he speaks and he gives them commands and he thunders. And they're all afraid. And Moses said, no, don't worry, don't be afraid, it's okay. And then Moses goes up the mountain. And he's up there for 40 days. I think sometimes because we're thinking ancient history, we can forget that 40 days is quite a long time. He's up there over a month. And the people downstairs are kind of going, oh, what's going on, what's going on? And they don't really know this God that well. Maybe, you know, maybe he's killed Moses or something. And I'm not justifying what they do. I'm just saying it's easy to forget that, you know, we might have done the same. Um, and after a month and then a bit longer, uh, when they still haven't seen him, they start to say to Aaron, look, make us, make us your gods to, who led us out of Egypt. And Moses makes them this golden calf. And they all start worshipping this golden calf. And Moses comes down the mountain distraught. You might remember he breaks those tablets. And um, he has to intercede with God, you know, for the people. And he grinds up the calf and makes them eat the gold. And then he goes back up and he gets more commands from God. Gets them redone. And when he comes back down again, we read that his face is glowing with the presence of God. His face is shining, radiant with the presence of God. And now, remember what I said. These people are used to the presence of the glory of God. They've been led by this pillar of fire. They've been led by this pillar of cloud. They've seen God's presence in any number of ways. But when Moses comes down with his face glowing, they can't cope with it. And he ends up having to put a veil over it, we read. He puts a veil over his face because they cannot cope with the glory of God coming off his face. I hope you see the parallel here, that Adam and Eve were comfortable with the presence of God. And then there was sin, and they felt the need to hide themselves away and cover themselves over. The people of Israel were in some sense at least comfortable with the presence of God, and they sin against God. And what happens? They find the need to cover themselves, or in this case, cover Moses and his glorious God-given radiance from them because they cannot cope with it. That's our golden calf here, if you're wondering if the picture isn't too clear. Actually, Paul picks up on this same passage in his letter to the Corinthian church. He says, every time that Moses is read, meaning every time that the Jews who didn't know Jesus read the law, he said, it's like that veil is covering their face so that they can't see the truth. It's like that veil is covering their hearts and they can't understand. But he says, when anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. So there is redemption for this state of feeling like we need to cover ourselves from God. That redemption is in Jesus, and in Jesus we can take off that covering, and in Jesus we can be intimate with God. And that's great, but I hope it comes out clearly from just those two passages, and we could dig into more, that God's ideal is for us to be, if you like, unclothed before him, for us to have nothing protecting us from him, no artificial protection, because remember, it doesn't actually protect people from God anyway, and it's, you know... (laughs) He knows them, he made them, he knows what they look like under the clothing. And the same is true of our hearts. God knows our hearts, doesn't he? He doesn't get taken in by any pretense that we put up in our hearts. And the ideal relationship he wants with us is one where we say, I'm not protecting myself from you and I'm not presenting anything other than who I am to you. I'm not trying to hide anything. 
Okay, that's a quick look at intimacy with God. Intimacy with people. Because at every stage that we've just looked at here, where there's a fracture in relationship with God, there's also a fracture in relationship between God's people. God's creation is only very good once both Adam and Eve have been created. I don't know if you've picked that up, but you know, the Genesis 1 account gives us God creating all these different things, and after he's created mankind, then it is very good. We know that that's after he's created both Adam and Eve because in Genesis 2, when he's just created man, he says it's not good for man to be alone. God exists as community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's love and community within God. And it's not good for mankind made in his image to be isolated. And so he makes man and woman for relationship. Creation is very good once there is that relationship there. And there's community on earth just like there's community in heaven. What happens when there's sin? Not only do they try to hide themselves from God... But there's fracture in their relationship. God says, Adam, what have you done? And the first thing he does is he blames Eve. And he blames God. I have to say, the woman you put in the garden with me, her fault. That's the first thing that he does. That's his first response. And there's therefore that loss of trust between Adam and Eve. There's that fracture in relationship there. And actually, if you look, there's been accusations as a response to um, challenge to us ever since. I don't know about you. It's my natural response If somebody accuses me, something in me always goes, could it be somebody else's fault, (laughs) please? (laughs) Or maybe I could make it look like that. And that's, you know, whether or not I go with it, that's a heart reaction in me. I'm not alone in that. I know I'm not. So (laughs) I won't ask for a show of hands, but mine would be up. Okay, so when we have fracture in our relationship with God, it also causes fracture in our relationship with each other. We get the same at Sinai. Moses comes down the mountain and sees this golden calf, and his first thing he says to Aaron is, what did these people do to you that you'd lead them like this? And Aaron blames the people. He says, oh, you know what these people are like? They're so rebellious. You know, we can't lead them, can we? And they were going to rebel and kill me. So, And then he lies to Moses, doesn't he? Because actually he made the calf. It says he fashioned it with, an, with a tool. And what he says to Moses is, oh, look, we threw the gold into the fire and out came out this calf. Just like that. That's his clothing, isn't it? That's him presenting something other than the truth because he wants to appear differently to Moses, his brother. Because he's afraid, because he's fearful of what he's done, because sin has ruined that intimacy of relationship. And he dissembles. There's an answer to this all, and it's in the book of 1 John. If you want to turn there, there's a couple of quotes. 1 John 4. This is from verse 19. We love because he, God, first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their father, sorry, their brother and sister who they've seen cannot love God who they've not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. There's a clear link here, isn't there, between loving each other, who we can see, who can we relate to more easily, and loving God. But furthermore, this is from 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to have fellowship with him, God, 
yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This is the answer we have. If we walk in the light, that is, if we take off any dissembling, any pretense, if we bring out into the open the truth about ourselves and deal with it, then we have fellowship with one another and with God. We overcome this fracture of relationship. We overcome this fracture of intimacy. So, I probably missed a slide or two, but let's um, keep going. And one more, please. That'll do. Great. So what does intimacy with God look like? Let's get practical here. Well, I want to use... Sorry, excuse me. I'm going to turn the mic off. I need to clear my throat. That would be great. Thank you. Sorry, I've had a bit of a cough going on this weekend. It's not helped me very much. Um, I'm going to use this picture of intimacy and talk about what builds intimacy. And the first thing is time. I don't know if you have this kind of friendship. Caroline is very good, thank you, at keeping these kind of friendships going. I have probably one friendship with somebody where we don't see each other for years, and yet when we do, we just pick up exactly where we left off. You know what I'm talking about here. You, you know, you, you're out of touch for a bit, and then maybe you catch up on Facebook, and, and then you, you get together, and it's just like you've never been apart. And that's born out of long time spent together, isn't it? You spend time together, you know each other, and you can just pick up because you know each other. The same is true of enduring marriages. And you see some of these marriages where people finish each other's sentences or you know, they just know what's going on. And somebody will say, oh, you remember when? And you don't even need to say what you're remembering. The other person knows which, which story you're talking about. We've probably all seen marriages like that. It's born out of long time spent together. There is no substitute for getting good time with God. A friend of mine and I have both been acknowledging this recently and realizing that we're going through our days kind of with our prayer life kind of running on half empty, if you like, on, on two cylinders instead of four, and that what we lacked was intimate time with God first thing in the morning. So we kind of held each other to account. We said, what we're going to do is first thing in the morning, we get up and we get out of the house so we're not distracted, and we go for a walk with God. And it's been great, and it's been horrible, because I do not like getting up at 6.20. I really don't. But do you know what? Half an hour spent with God first thing in the morning has been totally transforming my sense of intimacy with God throughout the day. It's not been the most verbal time. My brain is often still a little bit asleep, if I'm honest, even when it's been cold outside. Um, I've not necessarily got loads of words out of my mouth, and I wouldn't even say I've always come back saying, God said this to me. But I've been there with God for no other purpose than being with him. And as a result, I've gone into the day going, you know what, I have spent time with God. And it has affected how I've prayed for the rest of the day. I want to commend that to you um, in some form that works for you, that you are getting time when it is you and God. And if it's really verbal, and if you end up speaking loads, fantastic. And if you end up hearing God loads, that's brilliant. But if you don't, at least be there and be with God. Put in the time because it affects our intimacy with God in a really good way. So time. Time is important for intimacy with God. Yeah, please do. That's great. The next one is honesty. I couldn't think of a good picture of honesty, so I went with honesty, the plant. 
But actually, it's really helpful. The reason it's called honesty is because it's so paper thin, you can see the seeds through the edge of the leaf. Or I don't know if that's a leaf. I'm probably going to be corrected by somebody. But you can see the seeds anyway. The light shines right through it. This is honesty. In some way, I think I've touched on this, but in some way, clothing is about presenting something dishonest about ourselves. And I'm not saying clothing's bad, really, please. (laughs) Steve's going to get back from the conference, and everyone's going to be saying, Al was saying we shouldn't wear clothes. Really clearly, I'm not saying that. Um, But actually, clothing is about presenting something other than the truth quite often, isn't it? I was deeply insecure as a teenager, and I was always trying to pick my wardrobe to try and be like, can I just appear like I know what I'm doing and I'm not totally in pieces today? And I've totally failed most of the time, as anybody who's seen any photos of me as a teenager will know. Um, Thankfully, that's not many of you. But actually, there's a sense of honesty about clothing, about sort of presenting something that is not us. And what we need before God is a lack of that. There's no point presenting something that's not us to God. He knows anyway, but it stops us really engaging with him. This is honesty about sin. Yes, I've touched on that already, definitely. It's honesty about stuff we do wrong um, and facing up to that. But it's not just that. That would be really dull if that was the only thing we were honest with God about, wouldn't it? It's honesty about our heart desires as well. What do we really care about? Do we talk to God about that? Can we share that honestly? There's different kinds of dreams that we really care about, aren't there? There's ones where you feel like, actually, this might seem really silly to everybody else, but it it matters to me. God wants to hear those. And there's other dreams which are deeply, deeply, deeply held, which we just go, well, I don't dare believe that. So I don't want to talk to anybody about it because I don't quite dare to verbalize it. God wants to hear those as well. He wants to share those with us. There's no point hiding them. He knows them anyway. Half the time he put them there in the sense of the the desires anyway, not the sin clearly. And so he knows it's there. But if we don't talk to him about it, we lack intimacy with God. And related to that, um, nothing off limits. I like to go for a walk around Cutterslow Park from time to time. Many of you will know it, up North Oxford. Absolutely beautiful park. And there's this nature reserve they've just planted. And all the schools have been coming in and planting trees. And it's starting to look really nice. It's still in the process of growing. But I was wandering around there the other day and taking some time with God. And I turned a corner and saw this, which I'm assuming is some kind of electrical substation. Um, although a gas canister's lying around as well. It, it, it's ugly. It's got barbed wire around it. It's totally barren. And I... I felt in that moment God speak to me really clearly. And he spoke to me about an area of my life that was deeply personal to me. And he said, you're not talking to me about it. You're not listening to me about it. You won't even talk to Caroline about it. It's off limits. And as a result, it's barren. And it's ugly. And you can imagine <laughs> that went quite deep. I took the photo to remind myself. And... Um, when we come to God, there needs to be nothing off limits. Absolutely nothing. Because he knows it anyway. But if we won't talk to him about it, then he can't bring life. Until you get through that fence, through that gate, you can't go and plant anything. You can't dig up the soil. You can't make it fertile. You can't get rid of the ugly buildings. I'm sure they have a purpose. I'm sorry if somebody here works in infrastructure. <laughs> when we get intimate with God, nothing's off limits. We need to be able to hear him on anything. Otherwise, it's not intimacy. Okay, intimacy with God. How about intimacy with people? I want to pick up the same three things, really. 
But just to start off by saying intimacy with people, we need to be a little bit careful, don't we? Um, perhaps that sounds counterintuitive, given what I'm saying. But there's a really interesting passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about not judging. He says, don't judge or you'll be judged. And we use that sometimes to say to people, look, don't form any opinion about whether something's right or wrong. You know, don't judge or you'll be judged. But it clearly cannot mean that because in the same passage of teaching, Jesus goes on to say, don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. Clearly quite a sort of sharp image there. But what he can't be saying is don't form an opinion on anything. Otherwise, you can't decide whether something's a pig to be you know, to not throw your pearls in front of, can you? You've got to be forming opinions. There's a difference between forming an opinion on whether something is right or wrong, and in this particular case, I'm talking about forming an opinion on whether or not you can trust somebody and be intimate with them in this kind of way we're talking about, sharing heart desires and so on. There's a difference between forming an opinion and judging somebody in the sense of handing down a sentence on them, or prejudging somebody in the sense of making up your mind about somebody with no basis for, or evidence for that decision. So what I am saying is we do need to be careful. It's not right to share the entire contents of your heart with every person you ever meet or even every believer you ever meet. Absolutely not. On the other hand, let's not do that in a prejudiced way. And certainly let's not use that to pass judgment in the sense of making a sentence in our heart about people. So what does it mean to get intimate with people? Well, it's time again, isn't it? Um, I've been really struck by family time, the missional community based in Botley. We had a community based in Marston that Caroline and I led for a number of years, and we were a bit geographically disparate, and it wasn't always easy for us to get together. And we ended up meeting once a week and sometimes in between. And it was good, and we, you know, we shared life and we loved each other. But actually recently, uh, in the last couple of years, a couple who were there in our group moved across to Botley and became part of family time. And they live in and out of each other's houses and there is shared time and they have flourished in that because there is intimacy of relationship born out of spending good time together. There's no substitute for it. We need to be spending time with each other. And if we're not spending good time with each other, there's probably sacrifices that need to be made. Um, That might be introvert time (laughs) if you're an introvert. That might be perhaps um, some DIY that doesn't need doing around the house or whatever else it might be. But we need to make sure we're spending time with other believers. I wasn't looking at you, Graham. I really, I wasn't. (laughs) So we need to be spending time with each other, but also we need honesty. Not presenting who we want to be, but who we really are. Um, You know, if, God forbid, we find ourselves in that Moses and Aaron situation where somebody challenges us and we know we've done something wrong, let's not explain it's it's not really like that and try to make it like something else. Let's be honest. Yeah, I screwed up. I make mistakes. Um, I make bad choices deliberately sometimes. Let's be honest about our sin with each other. But that would be dull if it was just our sin, wouldn't it? Let's be honest about our desires. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where you kind of, everybody lists off what's going on in their life, and then you say, okay, let's pray, and everybody says exactly the same things, but to God instead? I've been in loads of those. I've led loads like that as well. And... It's better than not doing anything. I'm not talking it down, but what I'm saying is there's something more where you're really sharing what's on your heart. 
deeply. And then out of that, you pray from the heart together because I care about what Rachel O'Connell's just shared. Sorry, you're in my sight line. And, you know, I've heard her talk about it and I care about it and I want God to do something about it. So I pray with feeling about it. And we might not get around to every single thing that was talked about before, the, before we started praying. But you know what? God heard it anyway. I've prayed from my heart because somebody has shared honestly from the heart. We need to be honest with each other. And there needs to be nothing off limits. That's perhaps the most awkward one, really, isn't there? And again, I'm, I'm urging caution about who we share that with. It's not like there should be no limits about what you talk about to anybody. But there needs to be somebody who you can talk to about anything. I've been really blessed since being a student here. Dan mentioned I came up as a student in it was 2001. And I was very private about an awful lot of things in my life. And I've been really blessed by a culture that... People have modeled vulnerability to me. They've been vulnerable with me to the point that I felt comfortable being vulnerable again myself. And as a result, I've really felt enveloped in a, in a culture that's about honesty and open discipleship. But even when I spent my year abroad in a place called Montagie in France, it wasn't a very relational church. In fact, I got one lunch invite the whole year, and it was in the last month from the pastor. Um, anything else, I had to organize myself. And of course, the French were very rude about my food. So, rightly so, probably. But so even in Montagie, in this not very relational church, I still found two people who could walk through with me some deeply personal issues of sin in my life. There are people in this church you can talk to about anything. And if you're not in a friendship like that already, I'd encourage you to intentionally look for one. Because we need to have people where nothing's off limits. Otherwise, we end up with blind spots, don't we? Um, somebody sent around a video earlier in the week of two pastors discussing how they needed their private jets um, because they could only really hear from God when they were flying in their private jets away from the, the necessities of the crowd. And the person just sent it through and said, you know, blind spots. <laughs> and you know, I, I don't want to dishonor the people involved. What I am saying is it's easy to have blind spots if there are areas that people cannot challenge us on. And this discussion went on, and what you could hear was them saying to each other, oh, people sometimes challenge us on this, but we know, don't we? And it was like a, a blind spot, an area that was off limits. You hear the same about controlling behavior from leaders, about sexual misdemeanors, you know, affairs that happen when people um, are following God and then get derailed, and it's all because there's blind spots. There's areas of their life that people cannot speak into. <laughs> And we need to have relationships where nothing's off limits. We need to have that Nathan who can come to King David and say, you're the man, you did this. And to whom you can respond and say, you're right, I did. So, we want to be intimate with God. We want to be intimate with people. These two go tightly together. Um, I want a little demonstration. I wonder, could I ask, if, if you're a student um, from our student group, could you come up for a second, please? Um, if you're comfortable doing so, yeah, come on. But come on, I just need, I need a number of people here, okay? And if I can grab a chair from over here. Okay, so this, this is the throne of God, okay? God is there. Um, guys, could you please form a ring around that chair? And this is, we're out of space, aren't we? Can, can you move it over there into the corner so there's lots of space around it? Okay, and can you form a ring around the chair such that you can put your hands out either side without touching each other? Okay, 
If we're holding each other at arm's length, there is inherently a distance between us and God. Yeah, put the chair in the middle, otherwise the illustration doesn't work. Thank you. <laughs> okay, look, I'm physical demonstration, but this is, this is a genuine point. If we are holding each other at arm's length, we cannot get as close to God as we want to because there are other brothers and sisters who we are holding at arm's length who are also trying to get close. Can you now lock arms around each other's shoulders? But you get the point. <laughs> Intimacy, there you go. Thank you, guys. That's brilliant. Cheers. When we... Yeah, well, well done. You stood in a circle. There's this sense of when we draw close to each other, we also draw closer to God. If we hold each other at arm's length, we are limited in how close we can draw to God. This is not Al's teaching. This is Jesus' teaching. He tells it a number of times. You know, if you're going to give a gift to God, and you remember your brother has something against you, go and sort that first and then bring your gift. This teaching on unforgiveness is so powerful, isn't it? If we're not willing to forgive, will we be forgiven? It runs throughout Jesus' teaching that closeness to God requires closeness to our brothers and sisters. So I think there's two responses, really. There's a kind of an immediate one, which I'm going to talk us through in a second as we take communion together. And then there's a, a longer-term one of, like, how does this actually shape how we're going to live? So in the immediate, we're going to take communion. And as we do so, we're going to remember that we're coming together, knowing that as we pass that bread and that wine around, all of us are here because we have sinned badly enough that Jesus needed to save us, to die for us. And that's, that's why he did. He wouldn't have done it for any other reason other than that we needed it to be rescued. So we're remembering mutual sin and failure. That puts us all on an even keel, right? And we're also remembering, and this is the glorious bit, we're remembering equal, glorious grace given to us, undeserved. As we come to God together, we are all equal in the sense of none of us has deserved what what we've been given, but we have all been given so much. So much. And we've all been given relationship with our Father so I'm going to suggest in a second that we get into little groups and um, maybe one person from each group can come up and get some bread and some wine. There's juice if you um, would prefer not to have alcohol. There's gluten-free bread as well if that's um, a necessity for you. But let's take time to pray together. Let's take time to be sharing as well to the degree that you're comfortable in the group you're in. I appreciate you may not have chosen necessarily the group that you end up in as your um, you know, the, the people you would naturally share everything with. But to the, gre- to the degree you're happy to, let's be open and honest with each other. What's on our hearts? And let's allow that to shape heartfelt prayers with each other. So let's take communion and pray. But then I want to also suggest a longer-term goal. I, can I encourage you to find two or three other believers who you know and trust? Those relationships where nothing's off limits. Or perhaps those relationships where you go, I could see this being a relationship where we can talk about anything, even though it's not yet. Can I encourage you to do that in the next few weeks and to take communion together, to remember together that Jesus has died for us all, that we're all put on an even footing before him, and then to share the stuff that you wouldn't share this morning and to pray about it and to see that intimacy with people and intimacy with God come up a level. I think that would be a really good thing for us to do. Um, I'm just going to leave us a moment 
for you to clock who that might be, um, who you'd like to have that kind of conversation with. And if nobody immediately comes to mind, then maybe that's a conversation to have. Um, if you'd like to, for instance, have a personal pastor, that's the way that we, have, uh, that we do mentoring and pastoral care within the church. And if you'd like us to set up a relationship where you can work towards that degree of openness and honesty uh, with somebody who's more mature in the faith than you, then we would love to help you to work through that as well. But just take a minute now to clock who you might have that kind of conversation with. And please, afterwards, do go up to them and say, could we get some time?